You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, we have a story from the life of Jesus that is so powerful when it comes to the subject of shame removal. Jesus can lift us from a position and place of shame to a place of honor. Now, of course, this is what the Lord does in restoring us through the message of the gospel. Of course, we learn that on the sixth day of creation, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But sin positionally, but also sin just practically as we live it out, it really does damage to the image of God within us. And so Jesus in his message, he comes to restore that very thing that was lost. Uh, When our desires are wrong, Jesus in coming into our lives can restore our desires to be the way in which God intended us to desire. When our morals are incorrect, when our thoughts are incorrect, uh, the Lord is able to restore and regenerate and refresh. And so Jesus is in the business of lifting people, human beings, from places of shame into honor and restoration. And I say all that because this next story in front of us with the sinful woman that Jesus restored is really a beautiful story about that restoration power of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing that we get in verse 36 to 38 is the scene. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So the scene is powerful. First of all, one of the Pharisees asks Jesus to come and eat in his house. Now, a Pharisee, by definition, was separate, thought of in that culture as clean, as holy. And a Pharisee was interested in living a life that was pleasing to God. And he goes in to his house. We'll learn later that his name was Simon. So Jesus goes into Simon's house and reclines at the table. And just so that we have the right picture in our minds, it's not that he pulled up a chair to the table. It's that uh, in that culture, the table would be nice and low, even lower than maybe our modern day coffee table might be. And leaning on his left arm, you'd lean on your left arm and the feet of each person would then shoot away from the table rather than being under the table like we might uh, imagine, which is important because this woman then comes in. A woman of the city is what she's called in verse 37. In other words, she's not from this part of town. She's from the city. And the designation upon her life is that she was a sinner. Now, most have considered her a prostitute, uh, but she was basically what we do know, a sinful woman from another part 
of town. And she comes in, and because Jesus' feet are accessible, she goes to his feet, and she wipes them with her hair and kisses his feet and anoints them and is kissing his feet with this ointment and her tears. And it's this very emotional and powerful outpouring of emotion and love towards and for uh, Jesus. Now, there is some question as to who this uh, woman was. Oftentimes, she's confused, actually, with Lazarus's sister, Mary, who in a different town, in a different house, in Bethany, right before Jesus died, Uh, and was arrested, took an alabaster flask of costly oil and broke it before the Lord. But Jesus there said that she was preparing his body for burial. And, And so she was named and all of that. This is a completely different woman. And some people stumble at that, wondering how could there be two instances that are so similar in the life of Christ? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, it's a mystery to me that there were more, weren't more uh, instances like this in the life of Christ. But she comes in and she is overwhelmed before the Lord and she begins to wash his feet and weep over him. I think she had previously heard the words of the Lord come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think she had heard this from Jesus, had responded to that from Jesus, and had begun to experience the yoke of Christ and came in to celebrate him and to worship him because he had previously changed uh, her life. But we'll see what I mean by that in uh, just a moment. Now in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So Simon the Pharisee had this thought, and this thought was very simple. Any true prophet would have applied his prophetic powers to this situation, and he would have known through revelation that this woman is a sinner. And once he knew that she was a sinner, he would withdraw himself from uh, that woman. That was the thought within the mind of Simon, that he would say, uh, I've got to get out of here. This woman is a sinner. But Jesus, of course, is more than a prophet. He did know. He did not withdraw, but instead engaged in her restoration. In a moment, Jesus will say her sins, which are many. In other words, he saw her completely. And this, I think, is one of the beautiful things about the Lord. Simon's attitude is if he only knew he would run away. But the thing about Jesus is that he does know, and yet he doesn't run away. He pursues. He engages us. He does not withdraw at the horrible news of what's going on in our hearts, but he pursues us. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will he love 
more. Now, Simon here refers to Jesus as simply a teacher. I think he smugly responds to Christ. But Jesus reveals the error of Simon in his story. In other words, here you have two debtors. One owed 500 days wages, the other owed 50 days wages. And with these two debtors, both, Jesus announces, could not pay. Both could not afford to deal with their debt. Both needed the forgiveness of the lender. In other words, there are two debtors in this story, Simon. Both could not pay. There are two debtors in this house who could not pay, Simon. And so Simon is supposed to, in listening to the story, say to himself, who is the second debtor? I understand that this woman is the one who owes so much, but who is it that still owes a debt that he cannot repay, even though it might be less? And Jesus is trying to get inside the heart of Simon to help him understand the great debt that he has before God. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And obviously this makes sense to us if two people owe debt, but one owes more of a debt and is forgiven that greater debt, then he'll have a greater appreciation, we would imagine, at the forgiveness of his debt. Now, Jesus, of course, is going to use this as a picture of this woman who had been released of debt, had been forgiven much, and is celebrating Jesus. Then, turning toward the woman, verse 44, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Obviously, Simon really hadn't seen this woman. But Jesus said, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, verse 45, gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You, verse 46, did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon here is contrasted with the woman. Now, Simon did not do even the basic duties of a host. Uh, he didn't offer any water to cleanse the feet of his guest. He did not give a customary kiss to his guest. And he didn't give any of the oil, the anointing of oil that sometimes hosts would put upon their guests in that culture. But this woman went above and beyond what Simon did not do in that she wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, kissed not his head, but his feet, and did not anoint his head with oil, but took precious ointment and anointed his feet with it. And we have to observe and note, of course, that Jesus appreciated and noticed the worship of this woman. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this is a fascinating statement from Jesus. And, and I need to say this. It's clear that what Jesus is saying is that this woman was forgiven and then responding to the forgiveness she had previously received from the Lord, probably outside of this story, by worshiping him in this kind of way. That's clear because Jesus said, he who is forgiven little 
loves little. In other, in other words, a little bit of love is the result of a little bit of forgiveness. But this woman has a lot of love, which is the result of a lot of forgiveness. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, hey, she's received a lot of forgiveness because of a lot of love. No, that's not the uh, order of this story. Uh, that's not the order of Jesus's illustration that the debtors loved the lender and the lender overwhelmed by their love released them of their debt. No, he released them of their debt and they responded in love. And of course, the biblical story of redemption is not that man initiated love for God and God responded, but that we love because he first loved us. First John four, verse 19 so God initiated, Christ died, we receive, and we rejoice. In other words, love is not the basis for forgiveness, but the evidence of forgiveness. But here Jesus is saying, he who is forgiven little loves little. This to me is a one key to the Christian life. In other words, a goal of ours should be to understand the magnitude of our forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Because when we do, we will love the Lord strongly. So that's what this woman had. A deep, strong love for Jesus because of the radical forgiveness that she had received. I'm always praying that my eyes would be opened to understand the length, width, depth, and height of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. The more that I understand what the Lord has done for me, the more that I understand the forgiveness that I have, the more that I understand the totality of his regeneration towards me, my adoption as his son, the more that I understand the gift that God is and the gospel is to my heart, the more I get that, the more devoted I am to the Lord. And I want to be devoted. I want to be a man who loves the Lord deeply and desperately but I do not have it within me. I have to have it put within me by an appreciation for what the Lord has done for me. And that's what you have with this woman. He who is forgiven little, Jesus says, loves little. Great devotion is an offshoot of great forgiveness. And Jesus said to her, verse 48, your sins are forgiven. I think Jesus was saying that to the woman. Not at this point because now she was forgiven. I think Jesus is lifting this outcast woman up from the ashes. And he is announcing to the crowd, this woman has been forgiven by me. It's been private up until now. She's worshiping because of it. But I want you to know this woman's sins are forgiven. And the beautiful thing about Jesus and a relationship with Jesus is that slowly but surely, not only are we positionally restored, but slowly but surely, there is a progressive recovering of what we lost through our sin and our rebellion, through the putting on of the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3, verse 10. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How did this woman enter into such radical forgiveness? Her faith in Jesus Christ. She was justified by faith. A beautiful story and a story of great restoration.
Now that woman and Jesus' dealing with that woman was slightly emblematic. And Luke kind of continues that theme on into verse 1 of chapter 8. When he says, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here we have now a shift in the text. Uh, Luke is beginning to describe the second campaign of Jesus in circulating through the region and carrying out his preaching uh, ministry. He's done it once, but now he's repeating it. He went on through the cities and villages and uh, proclaiming in some probably places that he'd already proclaimed, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. The disciples are there, but we also see this secondary group of other disciples, uh, not like the apostles, but a band of women who are serving in caring for Jesus and his team. They, at the end of verse 3, it says, provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their means. Now, there were many women. Luke says some women. And then he says many other women. And apparently many of these women had great testimonies of what Jesus had done for them. They'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Luke records the names of three. Mary called Magdalene. Many people have uh, said many ugly and wild things uh, about her. Some have tried to say that she's the woman who was uh, the woman of the city who was a sinner that we just read about. Uh, but there is no evidence of that or no connection there. We do know from her that part of her testimony is that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her there in verse 2. So a wild story and a beautiful uh, restoration that Jesus had caused for her. And she became very devoted to the Lord, actually the first one to see Jesus bodily resurrected and uh, the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, very devoted to the Lord. And then you have Joanna, verse 3. Uh, she was the wife of Herod's CFO, basically. And so she is taking part of the family finances that is being paid from Herod's treasury, and she's using it to support Jesus and his ministry. And then Susanna also mentioned, whom we know nothing about beyond her name here, and that she was providing for the Lord and many others. And they provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their uh, means. Now, I think this is beautiful for a few uh, different reasons. Number one, the humility of Jesus. The one who at times produced money in the mouth of the fish or cause food to appear for himself he received charity he received the help of these women secondly it's beautiful because he's elevating women to a place of honor within his ministry team thirdly these women invested very well their financial goods uh, they did well with their physical property and their finances investing in the kingdom uh, of God. Just a powerful thing. I think sometimes we imagine Jesus and his disciples just walking around the countryside of Galilee and Israel for three years without ever thinking about where their next meal would come from or anything like that. But that's a nonsensical idea. 
they were provided for. There was administration, and Jesus did build this team of women who were funding the day-to-day operation of Jesus and his disciples. It's a fascinating uh, reality. And uh, these women, man, the money that they spent there on Jesus and his team, what a wonderful way to spend your hard-earned money. Now, verse 4, it says that when a great crowd was gathering and the people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. And so now here we have the beginning of the parabolic ministry of Jesus. He says, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold, which I'm told is an amazing amount of fruit. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this little cluster of parables that Jesus is going to give, they seem to be designed to focus on the hearing of the individual, that they would receive the message of the gospel and the word of God uh, really well. Now, a parable isn't supposed to be a story that has, you know, thousands of different allusions within it. A parable is designed to be spoken in an open air kind of setting that people would leave and not dissect the details, but that people would leave and remember the main flow which would help them to ask a question, which would lead them to a principal truth. So Jesus stood and told the parable of the sower. The seed landed on four different types of soil, and only one of them produced incredible fruit. Now, when the disciples asked him, verse 9, what this parable meant, he said, and not only did they ask what it meant, but Matthew's gospel tells us that they also asked why he spoke in parables. And really, that seems to be what the focus is here in the book of Luke. The question of why do you speak in parables? He said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So before Jesus tells them what this parable meant, he tells them why he's speaking in parables. Now here Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, which is a passage describing the hardness of heart in Israel at the time of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, those people at that time would not receive Isaiah's ministry. They would not receive the word of God. It's interesting because that passage is quoted here concerning people who needed to receive God's word. Again, in John chapter 12 by John to describe the stubborn belief of those who had seen so many signs from Jesus but would not believe. And then is used by Paul in Acts 28 to... Well, he was under house arrest in Rome, declare that the reason God had decided to take the message of salvation outside of Israel to the Gentile world was because of this spiritual blindness that had overcome uh, the people of Israel that he was attempting to proclaim the gospel message to. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying 
that he's telling parables so that he might prepare the soil to really hear. These people couldn't hear and they wouldn't hear, mostly because they thought they knew it already. And so Jesus uses parables to help people realize that they actually don't understand. They were blind, but they didn't know that they were blind. And so it seems to me that Jesus is using parables to break up the ground of their hearts so that they would walk away saying, we really don't know and we need someone to help us understand the truth. Now, Jesus then gives the meaning of his parable. He says, the parable is this, verse 11, the seed is the word of God. I've always loved this description of the word of God because a seed has everything within it that is necessary for life. Uh, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you cannot count the apples in a seed. One seed could feed thousands if it lands on the right kind of soil and continues to be cultivated in the years to come. And the word of God, the gospel message, is the seed that leads to life. Unfortunately, verse 12 there are ones along the path who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. I think so often we don't understand that there is a spiritual battle when the truth of God's word is going out. And here were those who lost the spiritual battle and uh, the word was snatched away from their hearts. And verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. So initially a great response, but Jesus said, these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now the problem for this group was not that they went through trials. Every group will go through trials. The problem was that the trials revealed that they had no root and had not really come to know the Lord with any kind of depth. There was no moisture, as Jesus had said in the verse 6 version of the parable. And so, in time of testing, certain people will just simply fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The problem here is an infested heart. There are too many priorities and desires that contradict God and his word. And the seed has no chance. Uh, you can serve one master. As for that in the good soil, Jesus said, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And so obviously this third kind of soil, this is what we want to be. You don't want to be like the Pharisees and religious leaders who immediately dismissed the word. You don't want to be like the crowds who were attracted to the miracles, but not the message. And the first moment you don't get what you wanted, you depart. You don't want to be like the rich young ruler who left Jesus and fled from Jesus because there was a challenge to his lifestyle. No, you want to be like these disciples and the women who followed Jesus even when it was costly. We want to be the fourth kind of soil whose hearts are ready to receive the word of God and to bear fruit with 
patience. And I would simply encourage you to have a ready heart, a heart that is prepared. This isn't a fatalistic message where we're being told what kind of soil we are. No, this is Jesus saying, you have a choice. And I know for me, I always want to cultivate my heart. I want to be a heart that is receptive and open and always longing for, thirsty for the word of God. Now, in verse 16, it says, No one, after lighting a lamp, Jesus goes on, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. And so Jesus here is announcing a rebroadcasting of the truth. The seed should be scattered. Let people see the light. Take care then, verse 18, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And I think that what Jesus is referring to here is the principle of spiritual momentum. When you hear the word of God and it comes into your life through a sermon or through reading, as you receive the word of God, you want to apply God's word and be faithful. And if you do, you will have more. But if you reject it, uh, then even what you think you have, Jesus says, will be taken away. Now in closing today, it says in verse 19, that then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I wanted to read this story during this teaching because here we are hearing the parable of the sower about the word of God. We're being told that we're to broadcast the word of God and take heed to how we hear the word of God. And here his mother and his brothers want to see him. But Jesus says, you know, my mother and my brothers, spiritually, they are those who hear the word of God and do it. One of the most beautiful things about obedience to the Lord, uh, relationship with him in his word, is that you get a family with the Lord. You get intimacy with the Lord. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.